Welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the Snape Dome, the podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. Obviously. This is Snape Centric with episode 26, and I'm joined by Acid, Jalapeno Eye Popper, Rey de Salinas, Masal the Dog, and Snape Snail Tape as we celebrate Snape's birthday, or Snurf Day. This time we read excerpts of great fix by Maria de Salinas, Groot, Kunaganda, Acid, and Eve Jensen Rentachi. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Snape Centric. I'm here with Snape Snail Tape. Hello. And Maria de Salinas. Hello. Jalapeno Eye Popper. Hi, everybody. As usual, you can call me Hal. And Masao the Dog. Hey there. Yeah, we're celebrating Snape's birthday, or Snurthday, as we say. 63 this time. I'll say 63 years young, but most of you probably think that that's pretty old. <laughs> Wizards live twice that long. It's fine. That's right. So he's in wizard years. <laughs> I thought this time just to read some fix that we've enjoyed over the last year. And some we've had wrecked, some I, I wrecked myself. And let's see, get started with The Alchemist by Maria de Salinas. If you want, you can do a little intro now. Sure. Yeah, The Alchemist is just a, a continuation of the story I wrote about, uh, it's a Snape O.C. fic, and she was uh, one of his students, and then later on, about 10 years later, they meet during the war and have to work together and end up kind of begrudgingly falling in love. And then at the beginning of the alchemist, they kind of start a relationship. Like he moves in with her and um, is kind of just exploring, exploring that. Yes, it's very interesting. Okay. The Alchemist by Maria de Salinas. Hi, I'm Maria de Salinas, and I'm going to be reading an excerpt from my fic, The Alchemist. And this is when they're first getting together in a relationship and Nathan moved in with her and he's decided to burn down his house and kind of end that chapter in his life. And he's having a little bit of trouble. So Grias shows up at his door. So this is chapter two. Snape didn't know what to tell Grias when she asked him what was wrong. There were a thousand things wrong. His neck hurt and he was restless and he wanted danger and he didn't want danger. And he'd forgotten to bring food and he still hadn't managed to burn his parents' house down. But he couldn't just let it all out and risk looking like a whiner. He felt safe with Grea. It was one of the things he loved most about her. But there was only so much she'd put up with before she left. He could have gone to Siberia and lived in total solitude. He could have bought a Victorian monstrosity and become a mad scientist. Hell, he could have joined the ministry and given them shit, secure in the knowledge that they wouldn't fire him because of the war hero thing. But no, he just had to go get himself domesticated and risk getting his insides stepped on and crushed. I'm fine. Just tired. Greg closed her hand over his. You're obviously not fine. But if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. She studied the room, the stained walls and the bulging plaster, the armchair with bits of stuffing poking out. She didn't know the stories that were written into these walls, just that he'd been poor and his parents unhappy. Why don't we get out of here for a bit? Might take you some good. I suppose, muttered Snip, rubbing his neck in what he hoped was a casual way. Like he just had a scratch there, but Grace saw right through it. Does it hurt? Bit. Here. 
She reached into her jeans pocket and pulled out a packet of pain-relieving paste she'd made. He never knew when the pain would strike, so she'd taken to making big batches of it and taking some wherever they went. She ripped open the white paper and spread them on his neck. The pain faded away, leaving his skin cool from the crushed mint. Gray patted the hold off. There's some clothes in there if you want to change before we go. Is that your way of telling me I'm too hideous to be seen in public? She tossed him a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. That's my way of telling you you'll feel better if you put on some fresh clothes. Snape snatched up the clothes and pretended to be annoyed, but really, he liked that she'd shown up and pulled him out of his torpor. You haven't eaten anything, have you? She said when he dressed and they were outside on his stoop. His stomach responded by noisily protesting his lack of breakfast. Greg gave him a look that was part exasperation, part affection, or at least he hoped so. Want to stop by, Greg? Snape murmured his agreement, and half an hour later, they were sitting on the swings at the old playground, greasy white bags of sausage rolls in their laps. You know, I got away from greasy food because it's all I ate while I was in hiding, said Greer through mouthful. These are so good. Mmm, said Snape, pulling his second roll out of the bag. I was always fond of it myself. Billy used to treat me sometimes. Did you two come here a lot? Snape pushed the swing with his feet. Sometimes. He used to fly off the swings and see you could stay up the longest. One night we got hold of some bottle rockets and set them off. Oh, hell yeah, those are the best. Greer finished her sausage roll, crumpled the bag up, and wiped her hands on her jeans, pushing back and forth on the swing. The chains creaked out a rhythm above them, background noise, but a long silence. Do you ever wish I was her? She was staring straight ahead of her, as though afraid to see his reaction. No, said Snape, crumpling up his wrapper. He wished Lily were still alive, of course. But he hadn't thought of that way for a long time. Or had he? Sometimes he'd had these horrible thoughts. What if Lily were still alive and she left Potter? Would he choose her instead? That sort of thing. He couldn't see it, though. Not after everything that had happened. And anyway, it was a moot point. She wasn't, and she hadn't. Ray didn't seem convinced of this, though. She didn't say much as they walked to the river bank and sat down in the cold grass. She was quiet as the lily was, but this wasn't a bad thing. Not at all. The river was muddy brown and stagnant, but didn't smell the way it did when he was growing up, when the textile mills pissed up chemicals into the water, leaving a green, foamy sludge along the banks. Grant took the stem off a dead daisy and held it up to her face. She couldn't see a plant or an insect or an interesting fungus without touching it. Did people judge you for growing up here? Snape ran his fingers through the grass, found a stone, and tossed it into the water. It's not something you bring up in conversation, let's put it that way. Grant picked up another stem and tied the ends together. Is that why you hide your accent? I suppose it is. You don't have to. Rome, you mean. He picked up another stone and rubbed it between his fingers. She had a way of peeling back his layers, exposing parts of himself that he'd forgotten. Parts that were raw and painful to touch, even when he wanted her to. I'm not really used to it anymore. They watched the river a while and walked through the old haunts, the slightly nicer neighborhoods across the river, the side streets he used to explore. He'd done this two or three times a year since the first war ended, but the sound felt different, like it was fading away. He didn't want it to, and he did. Should we head out, do you think, said Greya, when he reached the street? Or do you want to, you know? She gestured to the house and mined an explosion. Snape unlocked the door and ushered her inside. Her skin was flushed from the cold, loose strands of hair flung about her face, and he couldn't stop himself brushing them back, touching her skin, leaning in for a kiss, a deep, slow one, their bodies pressed together. I think, he said when he pulled away, we should go upstairs one more time. Grand nuzzled his face and slipped a hand under her shirt collar, stroking his back. I think that's an excellent idea. They went upstairs and pulled off their clothes, pulling the covers over themselves as they got into bed. His room was rather drafty, but it was nice to be held under the blankets with her. 
He discovered that sex was something that could change depending on their mood or the time of day. Some nights it was intense and slow, full of unspoken feelings. Weekday mornings it was playful and fast. And when they'd had a long day, they'd simply get each other off and fall asleep. Greer was relaxed, curious, open to new things, and he envied her for how comfortable she was. She'd be touching him, asking him what he liked, and he'd be thinking of his skinny matchstick legs and poorly defined chest muscles, lack of experience in the horrible things he'd done. He started to let go, surrender, and he'd think, how could she want this? But then sometimes it was easy and safe. Like now, if she got on top of him and sucked his earlobe. Sometimes you slip into your old accent when we're in bed together. Did you know that? Do you are. Mm-hmm. She traced his jaw with her lips and kissed his throat. Could you say something for me now? Snape smiled a little. It was easier when they were naked. I up me duck. You're a palm wench, aren't you? Graham laughed against his neck. Did you just say something horrible? And what if I did? Curse you and Manx while you finish yourself off. He stroked the small of her back, pulled the curves to her eyes, grabbed a handful and squeezed. Should have said something about that smart mouth. She cupped his face with her hands and smiled. What did you really say? I just called you attractive. You better have. She propped herself up so that he could stroke her breast. Tell you what, she said, her voice breathy. How about you be the local punk? And I'll be some slut you picked up at the Buzzcocks concert. Better not make too much noise then. We'd all come upstairs. Graham ran a hand up his thigh. Well, we're in trouble then, aren't we? You'll be screaming for more before I'm done with you. He gasped as her hand stroked him. And there in the place where he sat alone in the dark and shot down the flies, they made one last memory. A happy one. They never made it to the Isle of Skye. He felt so peaceful as he lay beside her with his lips on her back. But when they washed and changed back into their clothes, the gloom of this house, the things that he left behind there, had settled into his bones and he could scarcely get off, off the sofa. Grace slept beside him that night, her arms wrapped around him, but by morning she was gone. She was fed up, maybe, or he'd imagined her, and it was 1978 again, and he was on his way to see the Dark Lord. The stairs creaked and whoever it was must have been large and heavy. His dog? Whoever it was was breathing hard, and there was a sound like sloshing liquid. Grey burst into the room and set the milk churn on the floor with a dull thunk. Would you like to burn the place down now, or after we've had our breakfast tea? Snape propped himself up on one elbow. He had had a good sleep, and the woman he loved was standing there with a can of petrol, offering to help him commit a felony. Things could have been worse. I prefer to commit arson on a full stomach. Good, said Greya. I popped over to Greg's while you were sleeping. She flicked her wand and summoned up a bag of croissants and a paper cup full of breakfast tea, settling him beside him as she ate. My parents invited us over for Brisha's birthday tomorrow, she said, her voice determinedly casual, but though it didn't matter, really, whether he came or not. I have the day off, so I thought if you're not doing anything, Snape tore off a piece of croissant with his teeth. Will it be a big party? Just the five of us, that's it. They'd love to meet you. Snape lifted the tea to his mouth. It wasn't terribly hot, but it hadn't gone cold yet. Have you told them about me? Just that you were an M-16 agent who stopped a stolen satellite being used by a Russian crime syndicate? Snape dribbled tea all over his chin. Sounds like the plot of Goldeneye. Gray handed him a paper napkin. You watch James Bond. I'm surprised you do. I just like the Bond girls. He whipped his face for the napkin and gave her a sideways glance. In what way? Let's just say that I had some nice dreams about Natalia Samova kidnapping me in that white dress. They smiled and he filed it away in the list of things he learned about her. Gray waited, eyes raised slightly. Had she suspected that he was the same way? He could tell her, but his dad was everywhere in this house, and all he could see was the way his face contorted when he'd go out in his dress robe, his hair hanging down. Buried, spit, like a curse word. What did you really tell them, he said. Gray leaned back against the wall and rubbed her stocking foot against his. I told them you were a spy for our side and that you're very brave. 
Should have left out the brave part. Are you serious? You built me up too much. Greer rested his head, her head on his shoulder. You worry too much. They'll like you, I promise. Snape shoved the last bit of croissant in his mouth and chewed a while. Should I get her a gift? Your sister. Greer's head was still on his shoulder, but he could see her smiling out of the corner of his eye. Why don't we stop by Dog and Ellie on our way back and you can pick something out? They were supposed to leave from Scotland after a peaceful night in a remote cabin. She must have been disappointed, and he was too. They'd taken day trips together, but never stayed somewhere overnight, just the two of them, with nothing to distract them. I'll make this up to you, he said. The cabin, I mean. We could spend some time on Sky over the Christmas holiday. Sounds good. Snape crumpled up the takeaway wrappers, and Gray sat up and gestured to the petrol can. Shall we get started, then? They doused the whole house, every room, until Gray got tired of the fumes and had to step outside for some air. The hold off hung over her shoulder. Snape used the last of his petrol to splash the bulging plaster where his father's fists had been. Watch a burn, old man. He stepped outside and waved his wand around the house. Cave mimicum. Capella muggleton. He held his wand aloft. The charms had taken. He cast charms on the adjoining houses to stop them burning and pulled a little rolled up copy of the prophet and a thick lighter. Here it goes, he said, tossing a lit parchment into the open doorway. The petrol-soaked carpet went up in flames. He watched it burn. Watch the fire ignite the curtains, creep up the walls, devour the remnants of the people who lived there, the dust and the fingerprints and the dead cells, the stained mattresses and the cigarette tar, the holes in the walls and black burns on the carpet. Only when the smoke was too thick to breathe did he step away from the door. Greya slipped an arm around his waist and they stood and watched as the fire roared and snapped and lit the windows orange. The glass shattered as the window frames burned. Shouting, the put down, swats his hands on flesh. The long nights in his room inventing spells waiting for his first meeting with the Dark Lord, all of it dissolved into ashes and rose into the hot air to be scattered across the Midlands. Grace squeezed his hand, and he squeezed back, but his dog's voice rose up from the roaring fire. They'll never amount to naught, anyhow. He could burn the house down, but that voice would stay with him and listen inside his head. The fire died down within minutes, leaving an empty frame of scorched brick. Everything went blurry, and he told himself it was just the ash in his eyes. What's that? said Grace. Snape wiped his face on his shoulder and hoped she wouldn't see. The neighborhood kids called him a pansy whenever he cried in front of them. They would have loved his old nickname, Snivellus. Why should he feel anything for this place? What's what? That. Grant pointed to a wooden box on his front stoop. The fire hadn't touched it. Must have been protected by powerful magic. Snape bent down and picked it up. The lid was inlaid with black obsidian, runic markings sketched into the surface. He could read ancient runes, but he didn't know these off the top of his head. He had a fairly good idea what was inside. His mother's old things. Things she didn't want destroyed. Photographs, probably. Maybe some letters. He combed through the house and saved a few things. Her gobstone, her wand, a 78 record of Perry Como. Snape still remembered the sound of his voice. He missed this somehow. Must have been hidden away where his father couldn't find it. He kept it into the hold-all. Ready to go, Sagrea? Snape nodded. He'd think too much if he stayed any longer. Time to leave it behind. Whether or not it would leave him was another matter could have sworn his father's ghost appeared, following them. All right. So good. That was great. I made a note here. The word I kept thinking of was unhurried. Thank you. That it was a nice, like, pace of this kind of slow discovery of each other. And then, of course, we watched that fucker burn. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we all wanted so much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is actually the third in a trilogy. Are all kind of different 
phases in Nathan Gray's relationship. Yeah, the first is Valnera Senator, which is of her school days. And then the Ball and Cross is the time during the war. And then the alchemist, the third one, is after when they actually start having a relationship. And you can see that Snape is still kind of feeling his way through it, of being with someone. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that was the challenge because I wanted it to you know, feel in character because he's not going to come into something like that easily or even willingly almost. Mm-hmm. Is she a muggle-born? No, she actually, she was raised by her muggle father, but her mother is a a witch, and there's a, it's quite a long and complicated backstory to that. Okay, so she's a fellow uh, half-blood. Yes. I really like, you know, scenes where Snape is just kind of, like, leaning into the muggle side, like, eating at Greg's and, and wearing yeah. jeans and things. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I was going to ask if uh, the choice to do the fire, like, sort of with gasoline and lit parchment, as, as opposed to magic, was an intentional thing. Yes. Yes, I think he's kind of, I don't know, I think it's, it's, it's like, I think he kind of goes back and forth. Like at first the magic was kind of a rebellion against his upbringing, but now exploring his muggle side is kind of a rebellion against his death eater days. It's kind of, kind of goes back and forth. I'd say the big lighter really sets it off. Yeah, it's really cool. We can imagine, it almost seems like you could slip under the radar with spreading the, the gas around, but but when he pulls out a Bic lighter, it's like, oh yeah, we're doing a muggle burning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have been joined by Acid, one of our authors today. Very cool. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Let's see. My next one is by Groot, who is on the show recently. The story is P.S. I Love You. And it basically starts out where Snape and Hermione meet each other once a year at the uh, ministry ball to celebrate, you know, the war and everything. And uh, it's weird. She ends up getting an order of Merlin second class while everybody else gets first class. Then they're like, oh, well, you're the first muggle-born who's ever gotten an order of Merlin. Oh, you should be grateful. Oh, and you're the first woman, too. <laughs> oh, you don't have to thank me. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about this story is how it really shows how deep-seated the prejudice is against muggle-borns and, in this case, also women. Um, there are lots of details about that throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Anyway, we'll go ahead and play Chapter 3 from P.S. I Love You by Groot. Hi, everybody. My name is Groot, and I've been lucky enough to be asked to read a current story that's being posted, P.S. I Love You, and Snape Centric was uh, asked me to read Chapter 3, uh, which is from Hermione's point of view, but it sort of covers a little bit about the relationship between her and Snape as they're starting to get to know each other. Uh, so Chapter 3 is called Postal Salutations, and for those of you who haven't got into P.S. I Love You, P.S. is the, the nickname that Hermione gives Snape when she decides that he doesn't want to be called Professor Snape, he doesn't want to be called Snape, he doesn't want to be Mr. Snape, or doesn't want to be called by first name, so she begins to call him uh, P.S. So every single chapter title in the story is something, some derivation of P.S. And here we go. It was one of those uncomfortable days when the sleeting precipitation seemingly defied gravity 
hitting anyone brave enough to be on the pavement from every angle, rendering umbrellas useless. From her vantage point at the window, Hermione couldn't see anyone brave enough. The streets were empty. Still, domestic as ever, she opened the disturbingly on-trend mason jar of biscuits on the small shelf to her left. A quick dart around her confirmed, yes, she was still alone. She tapped her wand on the jar and in response, the mouth-watering aroma of freshly based biscuits began to waft through the air. Butter, sugar, chocolate, and buttery sugary chocolate, and sugary chocolatey butter. She grinned to herself. The siren call of it had not failed her yet. She returned to the box of books she was unpacking, happily lining up the spines with exacting perfection. It was a thing of beauty. She could smell them. The scent of the paper was more beautiful to her than the biscuits. Digital copies were one thing, but she still loved her books. And despite a gradual drop in sales, she was hoping the store would hang on for a little while longer. The doorbell rang behind her. She heard the footsteps of someone entering the shop and the scattering of droplets of water hitting the floor. I'll be right with you, she called. It's fine, said a deep voice. I'm just browsing. Hermione froze in the middle of reaching for another book. She knew that voice. Unable to help herself, she turned around and peeked over the shelf. A tall man, clad in a navy overcoat, was looking through the small number of new releases that were kept near the door. He was leaning forward slightly, and the bare back of his neck was slightly dewy from the rain. Above the damp skin, the black hair was closely cropped. Ah, she relaxed. Well, it wasn't him. Hmm. Why did she feel slightly deflated by that? Uh, if you find something that interests you, uh, we have a small cafe area where you can sit and read, said Hermione as she walked out from behind the shelves. Uh, we have tea or coffee for sale. You could try a biscuit. In my opinion, there's nothing better than settling down with a book and a biscuit on a rainy day. The man turned around. Oh, he said in a tone of heavy disappointment as his eyes met hers. Her inner self cringed a little at his reaction. It was Snape. Snape with short hair. Her mind imploded. Well, you cut your hair, she blurted out. His eyebrows elevated somewhat. Yes, several times I debated contacting you to garner your opinion on that matter, but finally I just forged ahead with this small personal life choice without your input. I do hope that isn't going to be a problem, he said in an exceedingly dry tone. Hermione was still a little shocked by his appearance. Without the curtain of hair, his sharp features were more prominent and she was treated to the full force of his direct stare. Well, you could have sent a postcard or something, she said finally, to whom it may concern. I've cut my hair. Hugs, P.S. Hugs, he repeated. Uh, warmest regards, she corrected. Hmm, was his response. Regards, she offered. I suppose that will have to do, said Snape sarcastically. I'll make a note of it for future decisions. Postcards are expected, apparently, and I have no right to any type of privacy. Well, that's all I asked, said Hermione. Thank you. What was this reference to a coffee I seem to recall? He asked. Oh, oh sorry, yes, Hermione said. We have a little cafe set up. Discount supply if you purchase a book. She watched as Snape walked over to the stand with the mason jars and waved a hand over them. He nodded, mostly to himself. Then he put his hands in his pockets and looked across at her. The biscuits, Snape said. Mm, yeah, I could feel their magic from across the street. Yeah, I thought perhaps there was something in here and they weren't aware of what it was, but it must have been you. Well, was that why you were disappointed, Hermione asked. I thought you were unhappy to see me for reasons entirely unrelated to magical books. I can feel two things simultaneously, said Snape defensively. 
I'm a Renaissance man. Ouch, said Hermione with a grin. She was in good humour. Short-haired Snape was proving to be just as fun as halfway tipsy Snape. Where had this Snape been? Uh, Take a seat, she said. I'll make you a coffee. Black, said Snape. No sugar, strong. Naturally, said Hermione in a serious tone. Uh, How much is a biscuit? 25 pence, said Hermione. Homemade, she added in what she hoped was an enticing manner. Fine, he agreed. Snape removed his coat and hung it on a rack by the door, revealing a lean figure in black denim and then a sweater that looked cashmere but probably wasn't. Hermione took a moment as she warmed up the espresso machine to observe, maybe admire, his ass. It looked very tight. Probably all those stairs. Walking up from the dungeons every day must have been the glute workout from hell. She realised she never would have surreptitiously checked out Professor Snape's ass in the wizarding world, but was comfortable doing so to Pierce in the status-erasing context of muggle surrounds. He looked good, which was weird in itself. She, on the other hand, probably looked terrible. She was wearing a favourite overalls with a neon green crop underneath and her high-top converse. They were even more beaten up since she'd experimented with washing them at the laundromat. He sat down in one of the chairs near the machine as she ground the beans and packed the portafilter. Hermione watched him out of the corner of her eye as she finished his coffee. He sat quietly in the chair without fidgeting or looking around. There you are, Pierre, she said, placing the coffee on the table, followed by a biscuit on a saucer. He took a sip and placed the cup back down. He crossed his legs, the denim riding up on one leg to expose the top of what appeared to be the same distressed black boots he'd worn to the ministry two years earlier. Well, Hermione certainly couldn't judge. She was also wearing the same shoes. So, you work in a bookshop, Snape asked, suddenly breaking the silence. Hermione sat down in the chair across the low table from him. Oh, it gets better, she said. I live above the shop as well. Unexpected, said Snape. I would have thought you'd be pursuing something more academic. Well, it's a mean to an end, explained Hermione. Well, I'm studying her at UCL, so... Elsie's Park is really convenient, but there's no way I could afford to live there. You know, bourgeois playgrounds, that type of thing. The downside to gentrification. But I met this woman. Anyway, long story short, her daughter had just moved out and she was looking for someone to assist in running the place. So I work here when I'm not at classes. And the bonus is I can rent upstairs for a really good price. So between the bookshop and my ministry pension, I can make do. So long as I don't splash out too much on frivolous things like, you know, heating, cooling or eating. Was that the short... Was that really the short version, Snape asked? It, it seemed long. Hermione glared at him. Well, I was just thinking to think warm thoughts about you, Pierce. She said, don't ruin it for me. I refuse to break the habit of a lifetime, said Snape. But Hermione caught the glimpse of a smile before he hit it by lifting his cup to his mouth. What about you? Hermione asked. No, I don't live or work in a bookshop, said Snape. Hermione rolled her eyes. I'm in for a job, she said. Teaching, Snape replied. Oh, said Hermione. She stared at him in astonishment. He returned her stare with his own measured gaze. I am qualified, he snapped, if you recall, or just cramming facts into the head of yourself and other students and stopping you or killing yourself on a daily basis not count. Well, of course it does, counted Hermione. I just thought, uh, I don't know, that you hated teaching. There was a moment of silence. I didn't think I was that bad, said Snape in an injured tone. What I met was, Hermione interjected quickly. She would have never imagined she could have hurt his feelings or even believed such a thing was possible. He didn't seem to get any um, any joy from it. Any joy? Was Snape's incredulous response, strongly suggesting to Hermione she put her high tops right to her mouth. Uh, she said, floundering slightly. She didn't really talk to adults like this. 
about personal things. I mean, she spoke to her classmates but hadn't really connected with anyone beyond her age and was deferential to her lecturers. But she and Steve had been through something and though it hadn't been together, well, perhaps it had been in parallel, on similar paths facing horrible things. Hermione thought there was a connection between them and that had been forged by the war. Or perhaps she was just imagining it. His face changed from an irritated scowl to neutrality faster than she could blink. Forget it, Granger. I'm trying to, he said. Uh, so, so, so you're teaching again, she said, sneaking out a verbal olive branch. It gets better, he said. I teach. Nursery. Hermione couldn't help laughing. Oh, wow. You're a sucker for punishment. Actually, I find them superior in maturity to most Gryffindors, Snape said. Well, you could extrapolate that to most of our alumni, Hermione added. Snape laughed and tapped his fingers against the cup he was holding. <laughs> Perhaps, he said. So, so why nursery? Are they easier to intimidate, Hermione asked. He frowned at her, but the expression softened when she grinned at him. Actually, the opposite. They have little fear and barely any preconceptions. It's refreshing. I bet, Hermione said. It was a job I actually could get, he added. Ah, she said. And with the job and the pension, I can afford those frivolous life items, like heating, cooling and food, he added dryly. Hermione giggled. Oh, well, excuse me, Mr. Rockefeller. Hope you don't drown in your piles of money. The doorbell chimed and Hermione's attention was diverted. Oh, I'd better go, she said. Snape shrugged as if her presence was not particularly of interest to him. Uh, let me know if you find a book you like, she said. If not, I, I guess I'll see you in a month. Of course, he sniffed our yearly penance. Well, you love it teased Hermione. With all my black heart, he said mournfully, placing a hand over his chest with a dramatic flourish. Perpetually sarcastic, said Hermione. You never disappoint me, P.S. Snape shot her a glare drenched in suspicion. Hermione tried to suppress her smile. He huffed and looked away from her, and she took the opportunity to find the other customer and see what they needed. By the time she had pointed them in the direction of anthologies, essays, and journals, Snape had left. Two weeks later, Hermione discovered a postcard in the stack of mail she collected on behalf of the shop. It was buried amongst the items of Birds of a Feather Bookshop, featured two ravens from the Tower of London holding the Union Jack flag, and was addressed to H. Granger. There was only a very short message written on the back of the card. To whom it may concern, have decided to start drinking Earl Grey. Regards, P.S. Hermione burst out laughing. She spent the next two weeks after receiving the postcard putting the call within our university friendship circle for a dress. The friend who had lent her the navy dress and sandals was on holidays and Hermione was too skint to buy anything. And old principal was definitely not going to transfigure something. They could shove it. But she wanted to look good. And the little insistent need to look good had been moderately increased since she'd laughed at that stupid postcard. I thought she wasn't going to examine too closely for now. The morning of the ministry's event, her phone buzzed with a text. H-Dog, I got you, girl. This baby was made to destroy men's minds. Call me. The message was accompanied by a photo of a bright yellow cocktail dress laid out on an unmade bed. Even the harsh glow from the fluorescent light of the frame couldn't dim the sheen of the fabric. Hermione found herself responding with a victory fist pump. It was perfect. And as it added bonus, it took only two short, and sneaky operations to meet her friend, make the dress exchange, or also accept a pair of dangerous looking heels and be back home. Hermione was well aware of the very subjective nature of beauty, and yet there was a part of her that wanted her physical appearance to be admired. What was that part? 
Was it the same part that made her jab her hand in the air at the vaguest hint of the question going unanswered? Or the one that made her over-research every essay and try and claw even the slightest hint of approval from her teachers? Why was she like that? Why couldn't she just be? So maybe she did go a bit heavy on the coal around her eyes or applied two layers of the mascara. And so what if she spritzed on some perfume on her neck? was just getting ready. I mean, it was no special effort, really. Every day stuff for sure. The patriarchy had nothing to do with the deep red lipstick. Matt, not gloss, thank you. She carefully highlighted her lips with. Nothing at all. It was all perfectly feminist and very empowering. Her feminist lips and very empowering dress thankfully survived entry to the ministry. Upon arriving, as in other years, she came across the wizard at the door who was dressed in all grey. Hermione did not miss the widening of his eyes. Oh, maybe he wasn't a fan of radical red feminism in cosmetic form. Where's your crest, he asked. My what? Hermione asked. The wizard sighed and before she could react, tapped the left shoulder of her dress three times with his wand. Hermione looked down and there was a small pewter badge now pinned to her dress. Its face was blank. Uh, thanks, she said. He rolled his eyes at her. Well, definitely not a feminist then. Hermione walked into the grand room and two shouts rang out which alerted her to Harry and Ron. She laughed and picked up her step as she weaved her way through the clouds. Her boys. They had managed to claw back what they had. A friendship born of trolls and dark wizards had settled into something peaceful and lovely. She caught up with them every few weeks in the cafe around the corner from the ministry entrance. It was the closest she went to the place outside the annual excursion to the Remembrance Ball. Hermione refused to discuss magical politics with them, but was always interested in their lives and their various disastrous attempts at romance. In return, they would sometimes even pretend to be interested in her glasses. Ron reached her first and pulled her into a hug. Blimey, Hermione, what are you wearing? He asked. It's called a dress, Hermione said. Honestly, Ron. Uh, but I can see everything, he said, a red flush overtaking his face and highlighting his freckles. You can see arms and legs, Ronald, said Hermione. Calm down. Hi, Hermione, said Harry. They hugged each other and exchanged a quick kiss. She noticed they had badges too, but they've had small crests. What are the badges, she asked. Oh, family crests, said Harry dismissively. Eh, everybody wears them now. Uh, mine's blank, said Hermione. Well, it's got your predominant family crest, said Ron. So I've got the Pruitt's one. Oh, so it's a pure blood thing, said Hermione dully. Fucking stupid wizarding shithole. Just a bit of fun, said Ron cheerfully. No one really cares about it. Yeah, come on, Hermione. Don't be like that, said Harry. It's just a tradition thing. Come on, let's get you a robe and a drink. I don't want a robe, said Hermione, but I do want a drink. She stormed off towards the table with glasses, ignoring the horrified glances she was gardening as she passed groups of soberly clad witches and wizards. Even Lavender, of all people, was in a long black robe with a high neck. She heard Harry's voice apologising to people as he rushed after her. Hermione saw Lavender turn to look, her gaze travelling up and down Hermione's dress. Their eyes met to her surprise. The blonde witch nodded in what appeared to be approval. Hermione! Harry shouted as he finally caught up with her. What? she asked as a glass filled with something golden. What are you so angry about? he asked. Are you joking? she asked. The badges? What's going on, Harry? I thought only knobs like Malfay cared about that sort of stuff. It's not like that, said Harry. The ministry's just bringing us back to what's important. Like family. Uh, you mean blood purity, Hermione said sulkily. No, said Harry, nothing like that. Look, I'll be back. I just want to say hello to Kingsley. <laughs> Fine, she said. 
She sipped a drink as she watched Harry and Ron schmoozing with Kingsley. She was now noticing everyone's badges and that she was definitely the only person not in formal robes. Oh my God, even Luna was in a rather subdued purple robe. What was going on? Granger, she heard Snake's voice in her ear. She couldn't help grinning a bit. P.S., she said as she turned around. His gaze flickered quickly up and down her body. Yes, I know, she said with some frustration. The yellow, two Hufflepuff. Snape lifted his glass to his lips and drank. I must admit, Hufflepuff is certainly not what sprang to mind. Hermione felt a little hot. She wasn't quite sure why, but she was immediately distracted from this part of the badge on Snape's robe. Oh, you've got a badge too, she said. The Prince Chris? It's a dream come true, Snape said. You must have strange dreams, she said. You've no idea how strange, Snape said. He looked slightly uncomfortable with the conversation, so she decided to divert it. How's the old grey working out for you, she asked. On my continuum of life's decisions, I have rated it largely innocuous, said Snape. I don't appear to be suffering tremendously because of it. Yet, Hermione said ominously, pairing it with a grin. He grimaced, true. I am being overly optimistic. Hermione! I think you're being summoned, said Snape. She turned around. Ron was waving at her. He beckoned her towards the small group where she saw Dean, Luna and Ginny. <sighs> Judy calls, cried Hermione. Enjoy, said Snape. He snipped the drink he was holding. Hey, P.S., can I ask you something? Hermione said, pausing briefly. She began to move away. I may not answer it, he said, but you can ask. The badges, I just think, um, well, something about them makes me uncomfortable. Am I being paranoid? Like, Ron just... Ron says it's just a bit of fun. Snape's face remained expressionless as he took another drink. She fidgeted as he waited. It's just the type of fun I think the Dark Lord would have really enjoyed, he said finally. And then he was gone, stalking away from her across the room. Yay. <laughs> yes. I always love group dialogue. I have a couple of the works bookmarked and I tag, I have extra tags on some of my bookmarks and banter is usually on groups. So yeah, even if you're not necessarily even a Snape Hermione fan, just checking it out for the excellent dialogue, just that that's the number one thing that keeps me coming back. And I don't even usually read works in progress, but this one, um, yeah, I'm there because I know the dialogue. Yeah, and Hermione uh, analyzing her intent while she's getting dressed up is just, it's absolutely brilliant and so Hermione. Snape taking his coffee black while she checks out his ass is also just icing on the cake. Yeah, so much humor. I chose this one, even though it's from Hermione's viewpoint, because it kind of gives you a feel that Snape and Hermione are getting to know each other, but also it starts to hint at the shenanigans at the ministry, which is a big part of the story. Let's see, it's 37 chapters, is it? I lost all my notes, so I don't... At this time, there are 22 of the 37 chapters posted. Yes. That's where it's at right now. And it, it is finished, so you're not going to be left hanging if you decide to join in. Plus, then you get to, you know, have comments and conversations. That's always a neat part of it. Well, and there's art. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you check it out for the art. I think my witch is doing yes, the art. She is. Oh, she's yeah, she's good. Yeah. And yeah, the one for this one is uh, Hermione in her dress. And yeah, she just looks gorgeous. And I don't know, there's a couple that look like a crayon drawings from his nursery class. It's just a lot of really, really cool art. Yes. 
anyway, yes. I love the thought of Snape teaching little kids. I've actually, I've always thought that like he might do better with younger kids than with like teenagers. I mean, a lot of for the reasons that he says in the fix. And I'm also really intrigued by the kind of fascist vibes the ministry has. That's really interesting to me. Yes. Yeah, that that is a big part of it. All right. Next, we go to a little bit of snooping. This is Like Walking on the Moon by Kuniganda. Read by Masao. Yeah, it's it's a small portion of a longer fic of 31,000 words. So it's it's a nice nice read and it's told in non-linear fashion so the portion that we start with is 1997 and then they go back to 1984 i believe anyway yes like walking on the moon by kuniganda like walking on the moon summary remus lupin has an outrageous habit of slicing up novels and only keeping the parts he likes the present author, following his lead, has written him a happier ending. An introspective, retrospective view of Remus Lupin and Severus Snape as they gradually pull into one another's orbits. Warning, an apparent, but inaccurate, spoiler for Bride's Head Revisited, a novel that's been out for 75 years, just to keep you on your toes. Disclaimer slash reclaimer. I stand in solidarity with the trans community and disclaim Rowling's abhorrent and incorrect statements about trans people. Like many of you, I feel a need to reclaim and own the stories and characters that have meant so much to me since childhood, while recognizing the harmful elements within those stories. Writing this has been part of my coping process. June, 1997, Severus. After a decade and a half of teaching, Severus Snape had received his fair share of unwanted wedding invitations, but he had never before been sent a wedding invitation in the form of a howler. After casting Muffliato and opening the envelope, Severus laughed, really laughed, for the first time in years. The last memorable occasion had been in response to a particularly passive-aggressive footnote appended to a book review in Practical Potions, Volume 28, Number 2, which had caused Severus to lapse into a brief asthma attack. He couldn't have said why he laughed so hard, except that it was so delightfully incongruous. There was the elegant script, silver ribbon, and electric teal cardstock, which Severus might have credited to the bride-to-be had he not seen that exact shade of nail varnish on Remus Lupin in 1984, the vague smell of sulfur when he opened the envelope. It was nice to know that beneath his preternatural veneer of calm, beneath all that niceness, Lupin still had a flair for theatrics, drama, and a deep reserve of spite. Perhaps Nymphadora Tonks had been a good influence on him, Severus ought not to have responded. It was terribly irresponsible and dangerous on many levels, but the compulsion was strong. He desperately wanted to be petty, to be childish, just for a moment. Good God, how he wanted to be childish again. So for one evening, in the midst of the day-to-day -day business of war and peace, he indulged himself. He went rifling through boxes and boxes of things. How had he accumulated so many things? Until he found what he was searching for his old paperback copy of Brideshead Revisited, the one he had carried in his inner pocket the first time he visited Malfoy Manor. He brought it over to his desk. The spine was already cracked, pages yellowed, the cheap adhesive having long ago given waved to the dampness of the dungeon. Severus flipped to page 223, and then gave it a good snap. Pages 1 through 222 fell scattering. He axioed a pot of bookbinder's glue, a high-quality formula of his own devising, charmed the remaining pages into a neat stack, and reattached them. 
As an extra precaution, he added the cover from a tract on pure blood supremacy. It was a flimsy disguise, so he had to have blind faith in the incuriousness of anyone who might intercept it. Satisfied with his work, he wrapped Book Two of Brideshead Revisited in soft white paper and recycled the silver ribbon to tie it up. First, though, he wrote his reply in an elegant note card, dictating the words to his formal calligraphy quill. Regretfully, I must decline your gracious invitation, as the date, time, and location of the ceremony were left off the announcement. Please accept this gift with my sincere felicitations. December 1984. Remus. He had a trick of looking up at you through his lashes and letting you fill in the rest. You could read whatever you wanted in his soft, shifting eyes. It hadn't started out as a trick, of course. It was an old habit born from shyness and low self-esteem. Whenever he talked to someone, he would angle his face away from them, just a little, as if they might not notice his ugly scars as long as he didn't look them dead on. His shyness had endeared him to people at school, especially his professors, who were generally inclined to take his side and overlook his faults. Only as soon as he became conscious of the look, he could never quite get it back again. He only realized he did it after a boy at a party accused him of playing coy. He really hadn't been on that occasion. Soon, though, he discovered that he could if he wanted to, and to great effect. Mascara enhanced the effect. Medium brown. The trick was to make it look natural. He was wearing it that night, for all the good it did him. He couldn't seem to carry on a conversation for more than ten minutes. Maybe that was his own fault. He would try, leaning artfully against the wall and chewing his cocktail straw, and staring intently at someone's nose. But then his eyes and his mind would start to wander, and suddenly he would be triple-counting the moon phases, or trying to remember the ingredients to his mother's lasagna, or reliving that time he had fell out of his chair in fourth-year arithmancy, and Winnie Jones had laughed at him with her cute dimples and her perfect white teeth. Damn. He'd done it again. The stranger must have thought Remus was wincing at whatever he'd said, because he was becoming defensive. Remus mumbled something polite and glided away. Out of sight, out of mind. He felt a jolt of something for the first time all night when he spotted his unfortunate ex across the room. As usual, Craig seemed to take up an inordinate amount of space, leaning on the bar, chatting up some poor unsuspecting bloke, one sizable hand in the boy's rear pocket while the other gestured emphatically at nothing. He was probably talking about boats or socks or what did he like to talk about anyway? Remus couldn't remember, although it had only been a month or two since. It didn't matter. How dare he show his face here, anyway? Wrong time, wrong place. Any other lukewarm desires, any faint hopes for the night, went out the window. Now Remus just wanted to hurt. Hurt, and then go home and sleep. December 1984. Severus. He was jumpy that night, afraid at every moment that his racing pulse would betray him for the fraud he was, afraid that someone would turn to him, point, and say, Look at him. He has no idea what he's doing. And yet the man standing in front of him, touching him, seemed unbothered. He was monstrously boring, but handsome enough. He looked to be about twice Severus's age, and twice his size, too. He'd already told Severus he had a house, and a car. Maybe they'd shag in the car, and then move things into the modern, well-ventilated shower. He sighed in anticipation. Hello, Craig! A new voice came booming from behind his would-be conquest. Severus felt the man jerk away, a shiver run through him at the sudden lack of contact. How's the wife? How's your daughter? Jillian, isn't it? Still on that gap year? The newcomer was absurdly shouting as if across a rugby pitch. Severus saw red. There was another exchange that Severus couldn't parse. 
And then the older man, his older man, his filthy car park shag, tipped his head toward Severus and made a hasty retreat. The interloper was still there, leaning on the bar in front of him. Seething, Severus took in his smug, self-congratulatory face. A beat later, he took in the fact that it was Remus Lupin. Lupin seemed to recognize him at the same moment, but he only nodded in acknowledgement. I'm awfully sorry to spoil your fun, but you don't want to go with him. He's bad news. Trust me. Severus did not trust him. Come here often? Lupin asked. Is that a serious question? Severus let that hang in the air for a moment. At present I live at a boarding school in the Highlands, so no, I do not. Of course. Silly question. I would know if you did anyway. This is my local. My flat's only a few streets away. Severus took stock of Lupin's appearance. He certainly looked like a regular. He was wearing dark jeans and tatty fishnet sleeves full of snags. He'd grown his hair long, not long enough to bat an eye at in the wizarding world, but just long enough to seem rebellious in muggle society, with an overgrown fringe that swept to one side. It was lighter at the ends, like he was recovering from an unfortunate affair with a bottle of bleach. His posture was guarded. Severus fought the impulse to make an inane observation like, I didn't know you were queer. Given that they were at a known gay bar, it seemed rather useless to point that out now. Or maybe, I didn't know you were such a muggle lover. Same deal. Useless. Severus watched Lupin reach across the bar and grab a wooden toothpick from a shot glass. Was it a trick of the light, or had it floated forward into his hand? Remus Lupin seemed just foolish enough to break the international statute of secrecy over such a tiny, trivial action. Lupin fidgeted with the toothpick. You look well. Lupin said, not looking at him. Glamour, Severus said flatly. Ah, yes. Same here. Lupin seemed to relax a bit. As soon as he admitted it, it seemed obvious to Severus. His skin was a little too smooth and glowing. It was like he didn't have any pores. Clumsily done, really. Something occurred to him. That man, Severus said. He told me his name was Ned. Hmm. He told me that, too. Lupin began to chew on the toothpick. Honestly, if you're going to choose a nom de guerre... You'd think you'd want to go with something a bit sexier than Ned. What's yours, then? Lupin smiled at him. Sebastian. He paused, as if for effect. Like in Brideshead Revisited. Yes, I got the reference. Lupin's smile shrank a little. Horrible novel. Wall was a sociopath. You know, Sebastian drinks himself to death, right? At eighteen, Severus had been quite enamored with the horrible novel himself, but he wasn't about to admit that now. Lupin shrugged. I don't really count that part. I only read the first half. I duck out before it gets really grim. Severus stared at him. Don't count? What are you talking about? You can't just read half a novel and call it a day. Sure I can. Why should I waste my time reading things that depress me? I just pick and choose the parts I like, and chuck the rest. Severus was truly scandalized. You can't do that, he said. You don't get to decide for yourself where a book begins and ends. You'll never understand what the author means to say. You'll miss the whole point. Or I'll draw my own conclusions, and mine'll be much better. Lupin was grinning now. The more flustered Severus became, the more energized he seemed. Then he changed tack. As much as I'm enjoying shouting to you about the nuances of authorial intent, he waved broadly at the nearest speaker, we're both losing the debate to Cindy Lauper. Do you want to go? Now there was a question. Not... Do you want to go with me? And certainly not, do you want to come home with me? And yet it was not not that either. 
Why? Do I need your permission? Severus retorted. No, but I'm knackered, and it's always safer to come and go as a group. Two's a bit better than one, and three or four is much better than two. See that fellow closing out his tap at the end of the bar? I'm going to ask him to walk out with me. You can come with if you like. Taken aback at Lupin's shift in tone and reluctantly grateful for his practicality, Severus assented. He waited while Lupin talked to the man in the leather jacket, then waited a bit longer while Lupin drank a shot of something and settled his bill. Finally, he looked back at Severus and nodded. Lupin seemed to conjure a formless brown jacket and gray wool cap out of thin air. Had he? It was nearly as good as putting on an invisibility cloak. They left in a group of four, walking together for ten minutes before parting ways at an intersection. Then Lupin and Severus doubled back, walking twenty minutes to Lupin's flat. They kept a few feet apart and didn't talk the whole way there. Severus wasn't sure why he was still following Lupin, but Lupin seemed to accept his presence through implicit agreement. Soon, he was trailing Lupin up three flights of steps and watching while Lupin struggled with the key. You should change the locks, Severus murmured. That type of key is absurdly easy to replicate. Lupin ignored him. As soon as the door swung open, Severus was assaulted by the sickly blue light of a television set. Some man was sprawled across the couch wearing only a pair of shorts. Severus froze in horror, unprepared to meet anyone else there, but Lupin beckoned him further into the labyrinth, past the stranger without saying hello, and into the cramped kitchen. Do you want a glass of wine? Lupin asked. He was already on his tiptoes, reaching for an upper shelf and pulling down a half-empty two-liter bottle of rosé. Severus hadn't known you could get rosé in a two-liter bottle. Lupin procured a couple of teacups and filled his all the way to the brim before handing the other to Severus. Prost, he said, before spilling half his wine on his Doc Martens. Who was that? Severus whispered, jerking his head toward the doorframe. Him? Lupin screwed up his face. I think he's called Ollie. No, Allie. I'm not sure. He just moved in. It's a six-bedroom flat, so there's usually about eight of us here at any given moment, counting me. Severus was already regretting his decision. When Lupin had said my flat, Severus had not interpreted that to mean the communal muggle hovel I also sleep in. He wasn't sure what he had expected, but he suddenly longed for his dark, quiet room at Hogwarts. He sipped his wine and cough. You know, this is half gone to vinegar, don't you? Has it? Lupin looked intently into his cup. I couldn't tell. It was bad to begin with. Better finish it off, I guess. He sloshed a little more so-called wine into his teacup and downed it quickly before slamming the cup on the counter. He stared at Severus. Severus shifted on his feet, uncertain. I hope you're not waiting on me to drink this. We'll be standing here all night. No, that's all right. Give it here. Lupin emptied Severus's cup, too. Then he ran his tongue around the rim once before placing it in the sink. If that was an attempt to be sensual, it was odd and off-putting. It seemed more like an unconscious action, the same way Lupin seemed to act without thinking when he pushed against Severus, hips first, and kissed him. Lupin tasted like vinegar and cigarettes. Severus pulled away in surprise, backing up as far as he could, which wasn't very far as he knocked into the telephone, and the receiver fell, dangling from its wire like someone had cast Levacorpus on it. Lupin withdrew in a flash, moving to the other side of the kitchen. He looked upset. I'm sorry, he said. I thought that's what we were doing here. Severus pressed a hand to his forehead, willing away the headache that had been building all night. No, I mean it is. I just thought... What had he thought? He'd thought that there would be more pretense, more artifice, some story he could latch onto and tell himself in the morning. Any excuse to explain why he was here, now, about to fall into bed with one of his great childhood tormentors. Shouldn't he feel something? Wasn't there some cosmic reason they had run into each other? Surely they wouldn't just stumble blindly into sex, faute de mieux. 
Lupin was waiting for him to finish his sentence. The dial tone hummed persistently from the unattended receiver. Severus had nothing, so instead he said, I just thought we would move to the bedroom first. Lupin exhaled deeply. Oh, of course. Come with me. He grabbed Severus's cuff and led him down the narrow hallway. To his immense consternation, Severus woke up alone the next morning. This was uncharted territory. He'd never awoken alone in someone else's bed. He was besieged by anxieties. Was he meant to wait for Lupin to come back, or go out into the common area? Would he have to make small talk with a strange muggle? Was Lupin even still there? Had he gone out? Did he have a job? It was seven o'clock on a Saturday, so Severus thought he could rule that out. But what if he worked at a cafe? Severus inhaled and exhaled, trying to get a grip on the present moment. He decided that he should get dressed first of all. He felt ridiculous fumbling to dress himself while sitting on the bed, and on the off chance Lupin did come back, Severus did not want to be caught in an undignified position. Having dressed, Severus looked about for his boots, before remembering he'd left them outside the room. He spotted the used condoms lying brazenly on the moss-green carpet. He heard the doorknob turn and scooted back to a seated position against the wall. Lupin edged into the room, balancing two cups of coffee and a bundle of paper serviettes. He handed Severus one of the cups and a single slice of dry toast before maneuvering onto the bed and shutting the door with his foot. The coffee was terrible, the instant kind with nothing added. Still, Severus accepted it, hoping it would help dispel his headache. Severus ate his meager breakfast quickly, preparing to say the words he had rehearsed all night, as he drifted in and out of fitful sleep. We won't be seeing each other again, he declared. No, I don't think so either. Severus hesitated. He hadn't expected it to be so simple. Right then, he said. Then remembering that he still had a mostly full cup of very bad, very hot coffee, he resigned himself to sitting there and sipping it uncomfortable silence. Lupin stared into the middle distance, his expression neutral. He looked like he might be making a grocery list or planning a trip to the laundrette. With every passing second, Severus felt more and more that he was imposing on Lupin's rather limited hospitality. Far be it from him to keep the man from getting on with his day. I'll be on my way. Thank you for the breakfast, he said. He felt he was being magnanimous by calling it breakfast. Sure, Remus rose with him, though he was trapped in the room until Severus finished lacing up his boots. There's a corner shop with a backroom flue about thirty minutes from here. I think they open at eight on Saturdays. I can draw you a map if you like. That would be helpful, Severus said by way of thanks. Lupin was back to being practical. Damn him. Lupin sketched a map on a discarded serviette, then walked Severus down to the front entryway of the building like a gentleman. Well... Severus said stiffly. Goodbye. Ciao. Ta for everything. Lovely to catch up and get home safe. See you at the ten-year reunion, Lupin said breezily. Ah, irony. Severus could tell from the tiny smirk that played across Lupin's face. Severus smirked back in recognition. Then, having nothing more to say, he left. All right. Thanks for reading that, Masa. Yeah, it was fun. The author, Kunigunda, shows the excerpt for us to read. Unfortunately, in order to edit for time, we left out the sex scene. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's a little unfortunate. The, the sex in this one is spicy. I like it. Yeah, um, it is. Incentive for listeners to go find the fic themselves and, and read it and leave kudos and comments. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I read this author's fic for the Snolliday's episode, and I just am always struck by how witty their narration is. Yeah, there are just these little things in there, just little enjoyable bits. 
I'm also super in love with the like meta commentary of, you know, take what you want from the story and and get your own message from it and how relevant that is to our fandom. Absolutely. I made a note to myself to find out where I can get a two liter bottle of rosé. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was 84, so you could probably get a plastic bottle now. I don't know. I bet you could. No, wine doesn't come that way. If not a box, for sure. A box, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kinnigandal also wanted me to note that Snape later finds out that Lupin is very high during this whole exchange. So <laughs> that's part of why his reactions are kind of dull. Yeah. Yeah. So we only covered about 10% of this story. It's uh, 31,000 word one shot and it's very good yeah definitely recommend going in and reading it's a it's a really fun fic especially if you love snooping like me mm -hmm. all righty okay so our next fic is the seventh star drop which is by the wonderful acid who is here with us today and i i've been on an acid kick lately <laughs> I have a question for Acid, because I had the immense privilege to read this reading for us, and I am only vaguely familiar with Stardew Valley. I watched a couple Let's Plays, but I am very familiar with the Harvest Moon series, and it seems like Stardew Valley is like kind of a level up from Harvest Moon. So I took the approach in my reading of trying to be kind of pacing it a little slow and, and really channeling my inner chill as I do some very like thoroughly relaxing gardening and fishing. Um, and, and my question for Acid is, is that about right? Is that what the vibe we are going for? That's pretty much the correct vibe for Stardew Valley. Yes. <laughs> it's um, very relaxed. It's created by a single person who did the graphics and uh, the storyline over the course of, a, I'd say, a year or so. So it's very tied together in design and message as in single person with the one brain did all the work. So yes, basically when I think of Stardew Valley, it's just this very relaxing, chill atmosphere that you can disappear on for hundreds of hours. Gardening and exploration life uh, of, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> great, great, thanks. Thank you. Uh, that sounds good. Yeah, I, I had no idea what or do Valley was. I didn't quite pick up on that, but I still love the story. Thank you. Okay, well, um, let's go ahead. Do you want to say anything before we, uh, like an introduction or, or anything to the Seventh Star Drop? Sure. Uh, Seventh Star Drop was a bit of a oddball story and in a sense that I didn't really picture it stretching for that long of a word count, but I started it during the pandemic when the lockdown was happening and everyone was craving these feel-good atmospheres, especially with the gardening where they could just relax and uh, escape into. So that carried across pretty heavily in Seventh Star Drop. I wish I had twice as much time to finish it and expand on the main plot, but here it is, and it's, it is finished, and I'm just celebrating having a finished story over that period of time in my life. Thank you for reading, too, and thank you for the future listeners who are tuning in, and um, thank you very much for uh, introducing it. Yes. Okay. The Seventh Star Drop.
This is Jalapeno Eye Popper, you can call me Hal, reading out Chapter 3 of Acid's Snary Fic, The Seventh Star Drop. This fic is complete in 12 chapters, and it is a crossover with the Stardew Valley video game, though you can read it fandom blind. Previously, in Chapters 1 and 2, Harry has moved back to Hogwarts and lives in Hagrid's hut as groundskeeper. He's enjoying the simple, quiet, rural life, filling his days with work tending the gardens. He was startled by a brief appearance of Severus Snape's ghost, and the second encounter included an odd request. In order to complete a very important potion, Harry and the ghost are about to go fishing. The Seventh Star Drop Chapter 3 The Fishing Trip Sleep didn't come easy to Harry that night, so when his alarm, a radio charm to burst into song from a certain station, sounded at 5.30, he was the first to groan and then spring upright, hit his head on the low-hanging shelf, and curse out the unfamiliar layout of the cabin. Loomis! Shit! Ask your trousers! He wore his socks to bed in anticipation of an early start, and tiptoed his way to where his boots were placed by the door of the cabin. He stumbled around, brushing his hair back and pulling on a thick woolen jumper. It would be cold by the lake, especially this early in the morning. Snape waited for him, just as promised, by the northern side of the lake right where the cobbled path ended and the dirt track began. Steamy layers of fog rose from the still water, pierced by the sun's rays. Dewdrops hung off the branches of every bush and every grass blade, and Harry had to cast a drying charm on his legs several times over while following Snape down the winding path. He'd stop, cast the spell, then rush to catch up, staring at Snape's hovering backside in a meaningful and grumpy manner. It wasn't as if the surly sod had to worry about his robes getting wet from the dew at least not any more. Snape led Harry past the bushes where the blackberries and the wild plums hung ripe and dark, glistening in the morning sun, into the ravine that trapped the chill to the point where Harry could see his own breath steam in front of him, and to the sunny clearings still green and festive with dandelions and heather, as if summer had never passed. When at last the snaking path turned and revealed the view of the water, Harry gasped at the sight of the castle, and the viaduct cast in the golden light and reflected perfectly down below, realizing they'd gone further than he'd ever expected. How did Saint know this spot existed anyway? Did he come here as a student, or perhaps a teacher? Did he ever bring Harry's mum here, perhaps? Didn't they grow up near a small river? Perhaps it was soothing to see the water of the lake and think of home. So, uh, how did you ever find this place? Harry asked as he set the pole down and found the place for his rucksack testing out the shoreline, eyeing the nearest tree branch as a decent candidate to prop up his pole. I'd been collecting ingredients, Snape said. Gillyweed grows nearby. I hadn't expected to come across Hagrid when I did, but he was fishing and had a spare pole. The bumbling oaf invited me to sit with him. It was not entirely unpleasant, and we continued on the tradition for some time. Ah, Harry smised digging a tin can full of worms from his rucksack and setting it down. So I'm your Hagrid replacement. Makes sense. I doubt you can fill anyone's shoes but your own, Potter. But if you don't care to get yours wet, for what it's worth, past that boulder is a decent fishing spot. Got it. He settled in and surveyed the surroundings. The spot seemed promising. Hey, meant to ask, Harry winced as he struggled to hook the worm. Were you and Hagrid friends? Snape stared at the open waters, as ethereal as the steamy fog lifting from them. His somber outline, all grays and purples as opposed to the pinks and yellows of the sky, caught beneath the water's surface. We were never enemies, Snape said at last, 
as if that was the most important thing he could think of. I appreciated that. I see. Harry smiled as he cast, for the first time, watching the bobber swing in a wide arc and flicker as it settled into the lake past the water lilies. A dragonfly took off, disturbed by the commotion. Somewhere to the side of them, a heron called out a warning of intruders among their space. Harry sat still, until nature quieted down again and accepted them as a given. He watched the bubbles rising from the water and the tips of Snape's boots, airborne but perfectly poised to begin his stride. I'm glad you enjoy each other's company. Um, I'm sorry I should have brought a second rod. For you, I mean. One is quite enough, Snape shrugged and regarded Harry with especially scathing look. I'm certain you can manage the boredom of sitting still in front of one somehow. After all, with the foolish wand-waving you've managed as a student, this should be familiar territory, no? <laughs> there was a question of taking the wrong side in the war, or maybe the right one, considering Snape's spying, and there was an entirely different question of the man's friendship with Harry's mum, and the fact that he didn't even bother to save Harry's dad. But suddenly, in the presence of a ghost, earthly meandering seemed so surreal. Snape died, a hero's death no less, and in the light of that, any questions about his life's choices seemed oh so very secondary. He paid for them, with the ultimate sacrifice of his life, a thousand times over. He was a contrary sod, grumpy and grudgy as fuck, but he was always that, and maybe the man truly couldn't help his nature. It took a few hours for the fish to bite, and by lunchtime, the net bag Harry had brought along and anchored to the shore with a stick held several medium-sized trout and a couple of bass. He sized up the bunch, picking the largest bass of Snape's share before considering a place for a fire. He set down his fishing pole in the center of the Y-shaped branch he'd stuck in the muddy water and left it alone. Soon enough, with plenty of effort, there was a pile of logs, branches, and dry leaves, only waiting for a single incendio to become an inviting campfire. Harry dug through his pockets for a pocket knife, grateful for his former self's foresight to carry it around. Snape humped at his clumsy efforts at gutting, but the silence between them remained commentary-free until all three fish were skewered and seasoned. They were suspended over the crackling flames on a contraption of several long sticks, and Harry had gone back to the lake to rinse fish guts from underneath his fingernails. He was brushing fish scales out of his hair and flicking them off his robe when he sensed Snape beside him. Over your ear, Snape gestured, his voice soft. Huh? Harry looked up at him. Oh, things were a bit awkward then, as Snape's hand lifted and pointed to the side of Harry's face. Scales. It's almost as if Snape had tried brushing them aside himself, but that would have been impossible. Harry's hand went up and almost slid through Snape's on its way, as he got a hold of three thick scales stuck together at the top of his ear and flicked them off into the water. Thanks. It was the closest Harry had been to a ghost in years, and he couldn't contain his fascination. The highlights in Snape's hair, the way Snape's glares were still dark and stern, and the way the shadows in the corner of his lips showed, compared to the glowing paleness of his nose. Snape didn't pull back. Perhaps it was even intentional, or maybe it was just reluctance to give up space, and Harry was reading too much into it all. You'd best check on the fire, Snape suggested after a while. So Harry did. He left the largest fish over the fire to char over for Snape to enjoy the smell of cooked food, and pulled the remaining fish off as it finished cooking, piling it on top of layered burdock leaves. Snape humped at Harry's efforts to balance the soft layers of leaves on his knees. Are you not in possession of a wand, he chastised. Harry grumbled, but transfigured them into a semi-decent plate, and even then made a fork of a nearby twig. You haven't got any, so it seemed unfair, he murmured, by way of explanation. Snape's lips twitched. I'm not eating. Not in a conventional way. But 
Nonetheless, I do appreciate the thought, and... He leaned over the fire and let the smoke pass through him. And the feast. The seasonings are a nice touch, he admitted. Thanks, Harry said, grinning. He felt especially pleased for spending the time to take apart and roast one of Hagrid's garlic braids over the fireplace overnight, until the slices had turned brown and brittle. He found the jar of dried lemon slices by the side of the stove and plucked fresh dillweed from the impromptu herb garden on the sunny side of the cabin before heading out. It was still wet with dew and turned fragrant and wilting, tucked in the pocket of his rucksack. There was nothing like a proper, freshly prepared food after a hard day's adventure on the lakeside, in the company of someone familiar. It was something Harry came not to mind so much, and even enjoy. We ought to stay longer, Harry suggested. After their lunch was a tasty memory, and the fish bones had been tossed onto the dying fire. He rushed toward his pole, having spotted the bobber go under. It flashed and disappeared again. It's a shame to leave now. I can bring back a dozen trout between now and sunset. They sat quietly side by side as all around them nature moved on with its day. Harry couldn't believe how pleasant it would be to just sit and share silence with someone. Someone he admired. Someone who was no longer a teacher. A fellow war hero. A legend. A memory now. One Harry vowed to himself he would hold on to. Over time, as Harry marked the passing of it with the fish caught and lost, the chill settled in the air, but not enough to warrant another fire. They watched the sunlight strike the waves and scatter as the tree leaves, golden and fiery red, settled on the water's surface. The waves lapped at the lakeside rocks, and the mosquitoes danced over the rustling reeds. With the sun going down, it was almost pleasant. I think I'm prepared to do what I must, Snape said, as the evening hush settled over the lake shore. His lips twitched as he continued to say something else. Now, if you... Snape, wait. Harry overrode whatever Snape was to say next. This was all far too soon. Whatever recipe Snape had put to paper surely didn't need to be written out so soon. Maybe we can do this in the morning? Or in a year or two? Are you sure there isn't anything more I can help with? Another fishing trip? It seemed so sad, so final to end things so quickly. Now that he and Snape finally... Did what? Share a meal? Had a brief moment of fun? This was mental. I believe there's no sense in delaying things further, Snape murmured. So be it. Ready? Harry pursed his lips. Over the lake, the sunset spilled, orange and golden. The lukewarm heat settled over the land and the water, the air fragrant with rotting leaves and the freshness of the lake water unstirred by the breeze. An occasional splash of a tentacle or a fin sounded in the murk of the shadowy cool waters. The insects buzzed, perching on the yellow blades sticking out of muddy shallows. Dragonflies and moths alike, the waterbugs clustered and clung to the last of the sunlight reaching through the water surface. Harry watched them for a while before summoning the roll of parchment, spreading it on the flat surface of a mossy boulder, and pulling a pencil out of his rucksack. All right, he said, taking Snape's solemn figure in to remember him by. Ready. He should have brought an inkwell. A pencil was all he had on hand. Stupid. It seemed so quaint, so informal, not an instrument to use to send someone off to the last unknown. Slowly, as if dictating a homework assignment, Snape recited the strange series of instructions. Harry took his time to write them out, letter by letter, in the last dying rays of the sun by the water's edge. Three drops of Quirinus McQueen's quadruple fungi elixir. Quadruple. Three drops. Got it. Do you know what it's for? Snape shook his head. Only that the recipe needs to be followed to the letter. Go on. Ready. 
the pulp of one crystal fruit unbruised, brandied and aged until dark purple, two frozen tears unexposed to sunlight. Crystal fruit? Oh, that's not something you hear every day. Why would anyone put that in brandy? The ingredients sounded so out of place, not the kind Harry ever got to work with in Snape's classes. Do we even have frozen tears in the potion stores? I thought we only used them in the medieval era as a cure for leech allergies or something. Harry had no clue about their use, but the old habit to ramble his way through potions essays was a hard habit to kick, even now in Snape's presence. I have some in my stores, and I don't see a reason for them to disappear, unless they were deliberately stolen by someone up to no good like you yourself once were, Mr. Potter. Um, okay, next. A generous pinch of dried skin flakes from the mature midnight squid. Now this is definitely not something you've kept around. Tell me. Live squid can be ordered, or caught here if you're patient. There's a charm you can cast on the bait. Oh, let me guess. At midnight? Snape raised his eyebrows and carried on. Seven star drops crushed to powder. Seven. All right, easy, Harry said. Uh, what's a star drop again? Snape shook his head. I'm not aware of anything by that name. This is why the recipe seems especially suspicious. I ought to know the ingredients, and yet nothing about this list makes sense. Regardless, you must keep writing. Perhaps it was all a dream, a nonsensical dream, a rant, a chant, merely intended to just help Snape pass on to the other side. Perhaps only writing down the ingredients, the act of dictating them to Harry, meant that Snape would be released, that he would be free to move on to the next stage of his existence, whatever it may be. Maybe that was the purpose of the ritual. Harry braced himself, determined to see it through no matter what. Stir only with the fin of the resurrected ghost fish in one cup of water from the great lake, collected at the night opposite of the Feast of the Winter Star, and bring to boil in a long-favored teacup in the center of a forest firestorm, started in a clearing where the ferns fiddle and the grass grows tallest. Resurrected ghost fish? Fiddling ferns? Now this was certainly a product of a weary and disturbed mind. Unless the instructions meant fiddlehead ferns. That sort of made sense. But ghost fish? What sort of fish is that? Who would ever dream up resurrecting it and then using its fin, but not the rest? It was so odd, and yet so specific. The Feast of the Winter Star, right, that's the fancy name for Yule Celebration. Haven't heard that one in a while, Harry thought. Okay, so opposite of that is Midsummer's Night. Great, that much is clear. We're getting somewhere. What's next? Silence met him. Is it over? A pang of worry flared and sent him scrambling for words, for time. Already? Wait! He stared up, fully expecting, dreading, an empty space left behind after this particular ghost's departure. But glowing an odd shade of magenta in the dying rays of the setting sun, Snape stood, silent, as they both shared that space together. The lake's evening chill murmured of the upcoming winter, of another year coming to an eventual end. The day has certainly ended with the sky turning a dark shade of purple, with the glimpse of twinkling stars to the east and the colorful splatter of sunset in the direction opposite. The elms and the poplars stretch toward the heavens. When all is said and done, would whatever is left of Snape on this earth just fade? Or would he wink out of existence, or drift like stardust toward the sky? Would his eyes keep on holding Harry's gaze like before? Harry held his breath, and for the life of him couldn't blink, didn't want to close his eyes, should he miss a moment as significant as this. Look at me, Snape told him once because Harry's eyes somehow mattered to him most, so no matter what, 
Harry would keep on looking. He drew a breath. His throat was dry and stinging. Twin trails of wet warmth slid down his cheeks. Somehow, Snape was still there. Remained there, in the most anticlimactic but heart-stopping way possible. He was still visible. He didn't fade. Didn't disappear into stardust. Didn't blow away on the wind like smoke. He was just present, as incorporeal and imposing as before, hovering a hand width up from the tips of the grass stalks and staring down at Harry along his sizable, glowing nose. I don't understand, Snape said at last, the statement punctuating the sudden burst of joy Harry told himself he wasn't allowed to feel. Nothing's changed. Harry did his best to contain his out-of-place grin, because somehow this seemed like Christmas came early, and Snape's company was an incredibly welcome sight. Shall we head back? he offered. Unless you still want that trout. Snape arched his eyebrow at Harry, his glowing form providing scarce light, as if a mild Loomis. Better than nothing, in any case, to navigate the lakeshore in the dark. I suppose you do need your rest, Potter. I've taken up enough of your day. They walked back in relative silence, a cluster of moths flitting through Snape's torso, as attracted to him as any candlelight. Ectoplasm clung to their wings even after they drifted toward other sources of light closer to the castle. Harry, too, got a sudden urge to run his fingers through Snape's elbow or shoulder to see if any of the glow would remain on his fingers as he pulled them away. He didn't dare, of course. This was Snape, after all. But it didn't stop him from picturing his palm lit a pale shade of blue in the dark, nonetheless. The exact color of Snape's robes, which clung to his bony figure. Careful, Potter, there's a ravine coming up, Snape cautioned as it got closer to the cabin. Would be a shame if you cracked your head open. Thanks. Um, Snape, you'll still be here tomorrow, right? For a brief second, Harry questioned what would happen if he goes to sleep and Snape just never appeared again. It would have been tragic, just as tragic as his death. I don't plan on going anywhere. C could you stay a bit, just until I put away the fishing stuff, maybe? Harry asked. Snape shrugged. It's not as if I have pressing matters to attend to. Harry hung up the fish off the rack outside. Cooling charm, preserving spells, done. This sort of easy, mindless work was easy even with Snape watching. Hey, listen, um, when you go... Yes, Mr. Potter? Nothing. Uh, just be here tomorrow? Snape's lips quirked. You worry too much. Snape didn't drift toward the castle until the sky was resplendent with autumn stars, as bright and heavy as countless berries in the bramble. Harry watched the lone, shining figure retrace the path he usually took for dinner until it grew dim and small, and for the first time in twenty-four hours clung to an unexpected hope in his heart for tomorrow. Here ends Chapter 3. Be sure to stop by AO3 to see the artwork embedded in this chapter, as well as leave kudos and comments. Thanks for listening. That's a good reading. I, I really enjoyed that. So atmospheric. Yes. Yes, it's beautiful. You really feel like you're there. And uh, the quiet affection between them and those just those quiet moments together are just gorgeous. Like when he tries to brush the fish scales off his face. Yes. I was so excited for this because I had never heard of this fic and it combines my absolute two favorite things, snary and farming sims. And not just was it like calm, but it was really taking me back to like being nine years old and playing Harvest Moon on Super Nintendo late into the quiet hours of the night. It was really, really good. Exactly. I was so channeling that Harvest Moon experience. <laughs> <laughs>
do the little breathing exercise, <laughs> go zen before I said anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. It was a joy to read that, really. And I love the Stardew Valley items used as potions ingredients. And when he's laying out like the potion recipe, I'm imagining the Stardew Valley town center where you have to bring all of the items to, you know, complete it. Like that's, I'm imagining Harry's quest to collect these items like that. Yeah, the entire story kind of covers obtaining all those items, including the star drops, which is the most difficult task. Oh, and also, Harry, Asa, could you tell us a little bit about how Harry got to this point that he's serving as caretaker at Hogwarts? Yeah, that was a interesting twist that I didn't know I could pull off, but the idea is he is adrift and lost in his life, and suddenly uh, Hagrid asks him to serve as his replacement, and he cannot refuse, and he pictures himself staying for a while and just having a quiet year as he figures out what to do next. And out of it all, he's, he's at Hogwarts, he's getting settled, and suddenly there is a ghost, and it's Snape's ghost. And spoiler alert, Snape is a ghost, but he gets better. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was uh, part of the story that was interesting to combine with such a mellow, relaxing mood, just the last ghost story I wrote was much more dramatic than that. And this one, I wanted to give a specific, relaxed and almost sweet atmosphere that was really unexpected from the prompt. And uh, I'm happy to say I've hopefully succeeded in that one. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's actually pretty different from your current work in progress. Something for the Lost and Lonely. I can't remember the exact title. I lost my notes. What is the title? This for the last and only, and uh, the setting for that one is definitely not Stardew Valley. <laughs> and, yeah, um, that's yeah. <laughs> the Kink and Cough Shop AU. I I usually refer to it as that, but I expect it to be no more than 20k stretched over into almost a novel length right now, and I'm hoping to wrap up the last three chapters. But Snape is not a ghost on that one. <laughs> you <No>. know. <laughs> It's kind of a double polyjuice. In a way, yes, with a reveal that just happened. And it, yeah, uh, you'll have to read that one. Yes. <laughs> back to back to Stardew Valley and Stardrop. It's, I have to come back to the spell. And I have to say that the Stardew Valley lore was a joy to explore and just try to tie into the Hogwarts lore and just the wizarding world and those have aligned beautifully together. I didn't expect them to merge into one coherent AU so well, but it's uh it's been an unexpected fit. Yes, it's a it's really a joy to read. Thank you. Okay. Well our last one is I don't know how to say it. It's an AU where Harry is a female and Sirius Black has a daughter of the same age, and those two and Hermione all end up being sorted into Slytherin. And there's just a lot of stuff going on. This chapter, chapter 16, that I chose was kind of the intro to Snape of the story. But there's so much more. I think they're on the 213th chapter at this point. So it's, it's a real monster of a fic. Here's a little introduction to it. Chapter 16 of Certain Dark Things by Eve Jensen, 
Mutachi. Certain Dark Things by Eve Jensen. Summary. They sought her out for conversation sometimes, cornering her in the garden or at the park. Not that they ever had much to say. Really, Harriet thought snakes were rather dull. Harriet Potter has always been odd. Between having a shadow that moves on its own and chatting with grass snakes, learning she's a witch really isn't the strangest thing to happen to the bespectacled girl with a lightning scar on her neck. Harriet attends Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where she makes new friends, encounters a prickly potions master, learns about the boy who lived, and meets the enigmatic Defense Against the Dark Arts instructor, Professor Tom Slytherin. Chapter 16. Fire Burn and Cauldron Bubble Severus was convinced he never got around to growing up. Not really, at any rate. He often reflected on his immaturity, his suspended evolution, when his mind wandered in the dead hours of the morning. A time of day even the ghosts found themselves drifting through with half-closed eyes and weary yawns. Severus was trapped in a limbo of maturation, not unlike those prepubescent dunderheads he taught. The tangle of a half-lived existence that seemed to have no beginning nor end, just endless spiraling knots. It was the result of spending his life among children, of never leaving Hogwarts. Except for those three horrendous years he submitted himself to the thrall of a madman. Those three years he would spend the rest of his life atoning for. He was both too old and too young. Too old to be a child and too young to be an adult, constantly under the scrutiny of those who taught him while he attended the school. And Severus often felt as if he simply exchanged his class schedule for a lesson plan and continued on without a thought. Dumbledore addressed him as my dear boy, Minerva chided him to be kinder, more empathetic, and Phileas still called him Mr. Snape on occasion, much to the wizard's chagrin. Memories blurred and echoed in the castle's unchanging halls. The sensation worsened whenever he crossed paths with the relatives or children of those he went to school with. He'd chastise Jacob Roll and suddenly remember the boy's father, Thorfinn Roll, crowing about joining the Dark Lord, telling young Severus he'd better take care of his Gryffindor bullies before someone took care of him. He'd grade an essay for a Rosier cousin and remember completing assignments for Evan Rosier, just to be paid nuts from the pureblood boy's pocket change. He'd hear girlish laughter and think of red hair in the sunlight, bright like fresh apples. He'd see pale eyes and think of a haughty boy now rotting in a cell good riddance. The cowardly fear of what nightmares awaited him, unborn until he entered the potions classroom for his first year Slytherin class, sickened Severus. He didn't want to open the classroom door. Hell no. He wanted to return to his quarters and swill enough dreamless sleep to sleep through the next seven years. Seven years. Merlin. Severus knew he probably wouldn't survive that long. The door bounced off the stone wall with a clatter when he strolled into the dungeon, startling the first years out of their tentative conversations. Their faces shone ghoulish in the candlelight reflected by the specimen jars, and Severus sneered, thrusting his robes aside as he sank onto the chair behind his desk. The first name of the roll call lit a fire in his gut, and he regretted getting up that fucking morning. Alara Black he wouldn't have believed it if he hadn't seen her with his own eyes, hadn't heard the discreet whispers share between the others in the staff room. His daughter, they said, isn't afraid to use the actual name. And Marlene's poor dear. Severus always thought Black had a thing for the werewolf, but there's that evidence to the contrary in the middle of his classroom, a mirror image of the malicious bastard who almost killed Severus in their youth. He met her eyes and heard Black's voice. All right there, Snivellus? Present, sir. Of course she sat by Lily's daughter. Of course. 
He dreaded the echoes he would hear when he looked at the girl. Severus had caught a glimpse of that atrocious potter hair at the sorting and had looked away. Had looked anywhere but at the child he'd sworn on his life to protect. What he hadn't expected, however, was for there to be no echo. Severus glanced at Harriet Potter and realized she only vaguely resembled James or Lily, a palimpsest of two originals blurred to create something other. She had none of Lily's softness, none of James's arrogance. The girl glanced about at the grim decor with the same tentative curiosity he'd seen muggles use at crash sites, her expression openly fascinated, but her gaze dark, closed off. Even in the height of war, Lily's eyes had sparked bright as if the witch contained an endless vault of joy in her head she could delve into whenever she wanted, and the girl's eyes reflected none of that. She was not James, and she was not Lily. She was a girl with hair like a niffler, eyes like a jackal, and a tie of green and silver cinched about her throat. When the hat had shouted Slytherin, parts of him rejoiced and parts of him despaired, because he wanted proof that even the good got sent to the snake pit sometimes, but he hadn't wanted that for her. Nothing good could last in Slytherin's hands. They should check to see if Potter is still spinning in his grave, Severus thought with a snort. He returned his attention to the list before him, marginally relieved, marginally disappointed, and continued to call names. Ah, Neville Longbottom, he flicked the parchment, voice thick with sarcasm. Of course, the boy who lived. It appears, class, our savior has taken leave of his busy traveling schedule to bestow us with his presence. How remarkable. Severus had a role to play. He knew this, and yet it came so easily as if it wasn't a role at all. Slytherins chortling like their fatuous fucking parents used to do whenever the Dark Lord tortured the unworthy, and Severus gloried in the vitriol bubbling in his veins like poison. The boy who lived to do fuck all, his mind snarled, even as a very small voice murmured, it's not his fault. No, no, it wasn't Longbottom's fault the world was filled with idiots, but that didn't make it simpler for Severus to swallow. The boy's ignorance chafed. Longbottom played poster boy for the ministry, said the Dark Lord's dead, and the public cheered, all while men like Severus and Dumbledore knew better. Oh, how they knew better. The Dark Lord was anything but dead. Tell me, Longbottom, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? An unfair question, but a plausible one for a brat like Longbottom, inundated with tutors since he'd first worn swaddling clothes. I don't know, sir, the boy said with an unaffected shrug. No. Severus replied in a voice barely above a whisper. He rose from behind his desk, walking slowly between the tables, arms crossed. A deathly hush encumbered the dungeon. Let's try again, shall we? Where, Mr. Longbottom, would you find a bazaar? I don't know. From the corner of his eye, Severus saw one of the bushy-haired Slytherin girls raise her hand, the motion determined. Who was she? Not a Death Eater's kid, and there have been only two names in the register that he didn't recognize. Either Davis or Granger, Lucius's ward. Severus tipped his dark gaze in her direction and gave his head a definite jerk to the side. Paling, she dropped her arm again. Do you even know what a bazaar is, Longbottom? No. Longbottom gave him a peeved look, and most of the Gryffindors fumed as Severus belittled their golden scion. What is the difference between monkshood and wolfsbane? The tension shifted in the boy's face, his mouth quirking into a grin. Nothing. They're both the same plant, called aconite. My, my, Severus sneered. One in three. Please forgive if I don't hold my breath for those odds in your marks, Longbottom. Malfoy laughed loudest. At her table near the front, Severus spotted the Potter girl discreetly flipping through the back of the textbook, terrified of being called on next. He ignored her and Blackspawn sitting at her side. He didn't know which one the bushy-haired girl at the front table was, so he said, Granger, aloud, 
and was rewarded for the lucky guess when she lifted her gaze from her notes. What is the result of adding powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? The draft of living death, sir. Where is a bazaar found? In the stomach of a goat, sir. What is it used for? An antidote for most poisons and several kinds of venom, including those man-made and those that occur naturally, Severus cut her off. Name one potion that uses aconite. Here she paused and gave his question thought, brow furrowed in concentration. The, the wide-eye potion, sir? Are you asking me, Miss Granger? No, sir. Then you would be correct. He swept past the table toward his desk again. That'll be ten points to Slytherin. And ten points from Gryffindor. Minerva's little lions gasped, outraged. Longbottom scoffed and curled his lip. That's hardly fair, sir. Severus only smiled. Let me be the first to inform you, Longbottom. Life isn't fair. His hand began to itch as he stood over Longbottom's cauldron and sneered at the contents. Severus scratched his palm without thought as he berated the boy and his partner, Weasley, for the globular mess they'd concocted, and for nearly exploding a perfectly simple cure for boils by not taking the cauldron from the flames before adding the porcupine quills. He'd caught them in time, if only just, smacking the quills from Weasley's fingers an instant before he dumped them into the stew. Of course, not a moment later, acrid smoke billowed through the dungeon as the cauldron near the front of the room collapsed, and Severus almost swore aloud. The Potter girl had quick reflexes, as she managed to shove herself and Black aside before the main deluge doused them, though part of her leg was already breaking out in furious foils. Black, wringing her hands, was apologizing profusely to Potter as Severus swept over them and vanished the botched potion, his temper close to snapping. "'What are you idiots doing?' he hissed in an undertone. The Gryffindors were plainly enjoying their failure, and Severus couldn't have that kind of dissension in his dungeon. Gryffindors couldn't leave his class looking pleased for Merlin's sake. Did you not just hear me tell off Longbottom and Weasley for almost doing the same exact thing? We took the cauldron off the heat, Black argued, her face red and flustered. Angry as he was, Severus did in fact see that the ruin of Potter's cauldron had been lifted from flame and set upon the proper cooling rack so it wouldn't scorch the tabletop. I was... I was just stirring it, like the instructions said, sir. Her tone corrected itself when she remembered to whom she spoke. Severus glared at the mess. You must not have paid attention to the temperature then, idiots. He wasn't sure what had gone wrong, but in a decade of teaching potions, Severus had never seen a cure for boils combust when someone was just stirring it. They did something to it, foolish brats. Sir, Potter asked, and Severus forced himself to look down. Down all the way, at the girl he loomed above. Potter was thin, short and thin and fine-boned, like a model fledgling, not at all like her tall, winsome mother or James Potter, who had been athletic and statuesque, for all that he was a great ruddy fathead. Can I go to the infirmary? No, Severus snapped. Ignoring her flabbergasted expression, he pointed his wand toward the storage cupboard and waited, hand extended, until the door banged open and a jar of ointment smacked into his palm. There's no need to bother Madame Pomfrey with something so imbecilic. Severus had no wish for details of this incident to find a home in the wrong ears. He shoved the medicine at her, then glowered at Black. The contrite expression the girl wore when glancing toward Potter worried him more than any arrogance or malice he might have seen written in her face. With his luck, it would figure the bloody traitor's heir would befriend Lily's daughter, as if Black Sr. hadn't done enough to the Potters. Another problem for another day. Severus turned then and found every eye in the dungeon upon him. He bore his teeth. Get back to work. The lesson ended soon afterward, potions divided into slender vials and neatly sorted into the rack waiting on his desk. Severus ordered them to clean their stations, but inevitably found himself lingering after the students ran from the dungeon, 
using his wand to scourgeify the tables, chairs, and floor, repairing knife marks gouged into the wood, muttering darkly over the residual damage wrought by inconsiderate children wielding scalpels and fire and acidic concoctions. Lunch had started by the time he could finally leave. Which was why Severus wasn't prepared for the voice that came slithering out from the shadows when he opened the classroom door. Find any potential among the dregs, Severus? Tom Slytherin, he knew, was not actually a Slytherin. No more than Severus was a prince, or their bigoted minister, a gaunt, or the Dark Lord named Voldemort. He also knew that Slytherin was and was not Tom Riddle, not exactly, and the only person who fully understood how that phenomenon came to pass was Dumbledore himself. Severus had given up questioning the headmaster on the matter years ago. All that mattered was that no ministry law in existence, be it old or new, could draw a connection between the seemingly youthful wizard before him and the twisted wretch Severus had served in his youth. All attempts to oust Slytherin from the school, both bodily and judicially, had been met with a kind of legal fluidity that came from years and years of blackmailing school governors and ministry officials, whispering the right words into the ears of bylaw creators, watching and waiting with the kind of uncanny patience Severus had never thought possible for the Dark Lord. Albus had tried to duel him and lost his arm. Severus had tried to poison him and lost his eye. No, he replied to the shorter wizard, stepping into the wavering torchlight. Tom had a sense of melodrama, just like the Dark Lord. He always dressed in robes, tooled with his house colors, snakes on the hem, and silver buttons on the waistcoat. His appearance gave him effortless charm, sharp cheekbones and symmetrical features, tidy hair, and a guileless smile. Severus often pondered the number of witches and wizards who had been lured to their doom by that young face. There, as insipid as ever, and singularly dull, though not showed some instinct with a skill. Had he been speaking to the minister, he would have put on airs about Lucius's son, or the Runcorn girl, or Parkinson, but the running tally of which master the Death Eater served was always shifting, and so he praised not Junior. Well, as much as Severus ever praised anyone. There was a kind of sick irony in the illusions cast by these men who were and were not Voldemort. In the open, they presented themselves as pure-blood lords of particular talents, and behind closed doors, they one and all claimed to be the Dark Lord and demanded submission, leaving the Death Eaters to play a game of confused musical chairs with their loyalty. Oh, Slytherin said, head-tipping. A pity, though you are ruthless in your artistry, aren't you? If you showed promise in dark arts. When speaking to Severus or to that churlish bastard Selwyn, he referred to the defense class solely as dark arts. Tom had been doing so for years, and if that wasn't a sign of ominous portents, Severus didn't know what was. The Potter Girl, for instance. The sudden urge to ram Slytherin's sodding head into the stones scoured through Severus, and he would have done so had he thought it would do anything. He'd watched the wizard drink a glass of pumpkin juice laced with enough nightshade and aconite to take down on a rumpin without flinching. Slytherin would undoubtedly survive a good head bashing. Miss Potter, he said with uncaring ice in his voice is as perfectly average as the rest. Slytherin just smiled. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's a, it's a really compelling premise. Yes, this is so much. Well, it's certain dark things. It's definitely a darker tale than the usual. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to read the rest of the fic because of what you said. It's really, really long. But mm-hmm. I was very intrigued by the idea of sort of how Tom Riddle is still around, yet it's not the same way they did it in canon. I was wondering, very intrigued by how that sort of magic works in this AU. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was really interesting to me. And I was wondering if it was like, I'm imagining like a situation where multiple of his Horcruxes are alive at the same time. Oh. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be really cool. Well, I was just looking and I see at present there are 214 chapters. Mm -hmm. Wow. And <laughs> almost 700,000 words. Mm -hmm. So I think there's plenty of room to really delve into it. So for everybody who really likes long fix, I think this one might go up on your list. Yes. Yes. Oh, by the way, this was recommended to me by Chip. So call it to them. And uh, yeah, Egypt was almost going to be able to join us, but wasn't able to, unfortunately. But a really good, interesting fic. I'm always a little on the fence about the that first classroom scene because it was so powerful in canon. And I don't know if I even like reimagining it going any other way. <laughs> but yeah, seeing Longbottom as the target of the unfair questioning, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was something that really struck me. Yes. Oh, in this fic, he is the one who takes down the Dark Lord. Harriet was cursed by the Dark Lord. That's why she has a scar on her neck. But when Voldemort went to take out Neville, that's when he disappeared. So, yeah, a little bit different. Is that in the realm of what we call wrong boy who lived? Oh. It's not a trope I delve into very often, but uh, I understand that it's very a very popular take is to say, what if Harry wasn't the one? What if it was Longbottom? And exploring that aspect of it and how that how that would affect Snape, since it isn't the son of his old friend uh, and tormentor. So where can we take that and delve into his head? And I think that's where this is going. So I am intrigued about that fight. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so many intriguing ideas in it. Yeah, I think it can take a lot of skill to compellingly reimagine those scenes that uh, are so iconic in canon, like Hal was saying. And um, I think that scene definitely intrigued me more to like read the rest of the fic. I think the writing is quite good. Yeah, the, I was really, really impressed by his comeback there and just the how spot on the characterization of Snape was. Like the idea that he's playing a part, yes, but he also finds it fairly easy to do. Yes. Okay, so I was just thinking, what would you give Snape for his birthday? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I would give him a hug, but he would hate me. <laughs> How about running interference against all the people who would give him something he doesn't want? <laughs> <laughs> I think if it were his birthday this year in light of Acid's incredible fit concept, I would probably give him a Nintendo Switch. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm just going to have, uh, say a pint, just because we're not that close, but he'll probably accept a drink after the life you had. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Definitely. Nintendo Switch was basically much, much more creative uh, idea. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they've had the same calming function. Mm -hmm. I would give him life, but that's kind of cheating, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I have a, a moment or two in some of my fics where, you know, his birthday comes around and the partner of interest gives him some kind of rare magic. Oh, yeah. And that seems like up his alley. Mm-hmm. would be interested. Something a little more academic, something like an insight into his broomless flight or something like that. Those are good. Yeah, I feel like he would enjoy, like, books, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> books, Yeah. <laughs> I've always felt bad for him about when his birthday is because my birthday is two days before. And the thing I can tell you about having a birthday around that time, like the first week of January, is that you're going to have many years where your birthday falls on the first day back to school after winter break. And I can imagine, especially with him as a professor. <laughs> oh, my God. That. 
<laughs> yeah. I think some people imagine that he gave Harry his first occlumency lesson on his birthday. Oh. Oh, I think yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Well, well, I'm really, really happy about all of the readings that we did. These are some great works, and it's nice to keep up with some of the slightly newer stuff mm-hmm. or branching out into ships or tropes that I don't normally get to. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. This this sounds like an awesome tradition to do for his birthday. Um, yeah. To collect some pics and just read. Yeah, I've really enjoyed these uh, sort of reading party episodes. And with my projects that I'm working on, I unfortunately rarely get the chance to like go out and look for pics anymore myself. So, you know, when I come on here and like hear about all these great pics, I'm like, oh, I want to <laughs> read that. That's That's really exciting. And I think probably for the listeners, too. Yes. Yes, I hope so. I certainly enjoyed compiling them. And uh, I kind of tried to keep it so we didn't have a three-hour recording session, (laughs) two-and-a-half-hour show. (laughs) So hopefully it'll be a little bit easier for people to listen to. For sure. I'd like to remind all the listeners again to please go check out the actual fix on AO3. Make sure you're giving them some kudos, comments. Um, get that engagement. Tell the authors how much you appreciate it because reading and, and listening, um, that's great. I'm so glad y'all are here listening for us, but uh, make sure you give those authors some love. Definitely. And if you go to snapchatpodcast.com, I will have links up for all these stories. So, yeah. All right. Well, gosh, I sure appreciate everybody coming today. Acid. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, sure thing. Yeah. I appreciate being a part of it. I appreciate you being here. Maria de Salinas? Yes, thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be on this podcast. It it was fun having you. Hal? It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And Snail? Yes, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And Maso? Yeah, absolutely. I always enjoy coming on to the Snapchat podcast and reading some really great fics. Thank you. You bet. And yes, we will continue this tradition, I believe. So... Woohoo. Alrighty. Okay, everybody have a good night. Or no, have a good day. I think I know what time of day it is, but okay. Whatever part of day it is for all the listeners in the world. <laughs> have a good one. Right. Have a good one, yep. All right. Take care, y'all. You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. And there you have it. Thanks again to guest Acid. Jalapeno Eye Popper, Maria de Salinas, Maso the Dog, and Snape Snail Tape for appearing on the show. Thanks also to Maria de Salinas, Groot Kuniganda, Acid, and Eve Jensen Rentachi for the awesome fix. Check out the Thick Rex page on our website at snapechatpodcast.com for links to all these excellent stories and more. And here we must say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't. There. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us, or leave a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Support us on Coffee to help defray the cost of production. Many thanks to Nix for her continued work on our website at snapechatpodcast.com. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shippers podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.